0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, June 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host extraordinary Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going?
1: Hey, it's going pretty well, pretty well over here. Uh, I want to give a quick shout-out to all the dads for Father's Day this weekend. Thank you for being good dads.
0: Yeah, special shout-out to uh, my dad, Pete, Nick's dad, Mike, Love you guys, and uh, thanks for being a pivotal part of our childhood into adulthood.
1: Yeah, seriously, and I also wanna give a quick shout-out to my sister, who is turning an age that I will not say on the uh, podcast, because it's over 30. And uh, yeah, I wanna give a quick shout-out to her. Happy birthday, Sam. Happy birthday, Sam. Sorry, Nick almost just doxed you and
0: told everyone your you're real age. <laughs> um, also, you gotta start doing the like the 29 thing, because- I know my mom was was 29 until my siblings were getting close to that age, and then she <laughs> shifted to 39, so it's always a nine
1: at the end. <laughs> yeah, you got to just keep it on the nines, um, and honestly, 30 is the new 20. Yeah. I'm going to say it out loud. I see people who are 30, I'm like, is that guy 20? I don't know.
0: Yeah, but then you see, you know, us with our harsh podcaster eyes where like we've seen some I almost cursed our eyes look as if we are already thirty and that's not a problem, baby.
1: Yeah, it's really not because we look twenty now that we're looking <laughs> like we're thirty. It's the most rambling,
0: <laughs> awful intro ever. Let's let's do this. <laughs> Happy birthday, Sam. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. <laughs> today we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy and environmental policy with two
1: episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. Yes. So let's get into our quick hits for the week. So the first one is by Owen McSweeney of CNN, who writes, why climate activists aren't buying the FIFA World Cup's green claims? FIFA's president Gianni Infantino
0: said last Sunday that this year's World Cup would be the first ever of its kind to be carbon-free, reiterating a pledge the world football, or soccer if you're here in the States, governing body made previously about the tournament this year in Qatar. Qatar is the largest per capita emitter of carbon dioxide in the world, and the country pledged to keep emissions low and remove as much carbon from the atmosphere as the tournament will produce. They plan to do this by investing in carbon capture projects. Climate activists have accused the country and FIFA of greenwashing. Michael Bloss, a member of European Parliament for Germany's Greens Party, called this, quote, a bit of a punch in the face and added that calling it a green championship is bizarre.
1: Yeah, so FIFA estimates that the carbon footprint of the World Cup will be roughly 3.6 million metric tons of CO2. Carbon Market Watch, or CMW, says that those calculations are underestimated for a few reasons. First, Qatar has built seven new arenas for this tournament, six of them will be permanent. Two, CMW also said that FIFA excluded air-conditioning-related emissions to cool the stadiums. And three, CMW added that the footprint is based on the 70 days the stadiums will be used and not their entire lifetime, which includes maintenance.
0: So just to kind of follow up on that second point, Nick made, it's really, 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 really hot in Qatar, which is why they had to like shift the World Cup from
1: the summer to, I forget, is it November this year? Yeah. So it's going to be like Black Friday, like right after Thanksgiving. Um, And yeah, they did have to shift it because it gets insanely hot. But yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, usually the World Cup is played in the month of June. So they did have to shift it this year.
0: Yeah. And it's not like the stadiums are, are going to be running without air conditioning while all of the workers are going to be, you know, preparing those stadiums. So yeah, it's going to be very hot. Air conditioning's going to be running and those are lofty emissions to just completely omit from these calculations. Yeah. So Cutter's Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy is organizing the event. And they have pledged to make sure that the stadiums are not simply abandoned after the World Cup ends, which we have seen with other World Cups. Cutter, in addition to the carbon capture projects that we mentioned, has also pledged to buy carbon offsets for the emissions created. Carbon offsets have their own sets of issues. So basically, more offsets are sold than we are generating. So planting X amount of trees is good. But... We're causing X plus five amount of carbon emissions all the time. So it's it's not going to offset the damage we're doing. So another thing to add is that the impact of carbon credits is usually overestimated to make businesses look better. And one way to look at this is how a mature tree stores more carbon than a young tree. So planting new trees while good is not as effective
1: as simply ending deforestation and letting those mature trees do their thing. Yeah. Definitely. And one of the things Qatar is working in its favor is that the country is on the smaller end. So the distance between stadiums is short and the need for domestic air travel is less than if it was held in a country like the United States, which it will be in 2026. On the other hand, Qatar announced that ticket holders will be staying in neighboring countries with shuttles in and out of the country by air. To attend the games. Yeah, so the airfare emissions are still going to be tremendous, even though this is a real opportunity to limit
0: domestic travel in between stadiums for people who want to buy tickets to see multiple teams play, or maybe their team that they're following is playing in a different stadium. It's going to be harder to do that now that you're going to be basically shuttling in from neighboring countries. And Qatar Airways estimates an extra 160 flights per day during the tournament because of this.
1: Yeah, it's going to be insane. And like, I don't really know if they have a plan for the 2026 World Cup either because it's going to be the same situation. So it's basically a joint host of Mexico, Canada and the U.S. for 2026. And like if your team, let's say your team is France, they might be playing in Mexico one day and then you want to follow the team, like travel with the team they might be playing in Canada or the U S like it's going to be insane in terms of airfare and the carbon footprint is going to go through the roof. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, that that's a good point. And you're definitely correct. The footprint's going to be tremendous for that. What's what's disappointing is that there was a chance to avoid that for this world cup. And it seems like we're, we're not going to do that. So this is kind of a weak attempt to say that it's going to be carbon neutral.
1: Yeah. Agreed. And I'm also thinking like, if you need any examples of stadiums being built and then just left for dead, go look at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. Mm-hmm. And like the they have like then and now pictures. It's disgusting. I'm not gonna lie. It's like the pools that were like once beautifully blue are like just this nasty like brown. I was gonna say poop brown, but um, <laughs> it's just this nasty brown color. And uh, it's it's just insane that you could just make this beautiful stadium or arena, whatever the case may be, and then just completely abandon it.
0: Yeah. And the thing for me is like, look, if you're going to abandon it, that's fine. So long as you knock it down, repurpose the steel you use, repurpose the concrete. If you can, you know, take the materials out and then turn it into a park. Yeah. Plant a forest there, like do something. Don't just leave it. And, you know, because of financials, it's, it's not as easy to do that as it is for you and I to say, oh, just do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to our next one. And it is titled Yellowstone Park, staggered by rain and floods. will stay closed for days. By Alex Traub, Livia Albeck-Ripka, and Christine Hauser from the New York Times.
0: Yellowstone National Park, the oldest national park in our country, was hit by record rainfall and melting snowpack, which resulted in floods and mudslides and caused over 10,000 visitors to seek safety. The most impact was seen in the northern section of the park, and parts of it may stay closed for the rest of the season. The park as a whole will remain completely closed for about a week. The southern loop there will be reopened sooner, but the northern entrance will probably stay closed until at least October, according to Cam Shally, the park's superintendent. The flooding eroded concrete roads, destroyed bridges, and even resulted in a house being pulled into the Yellowstone River. The damage has resulted in one death due to a cardiac arrest, but other than that, luckily, there were no injuries reported.
1: Yeah, so Montana's Governor Greg Gianforte declared a statewide disaster on Tuesday, and a dozen people were stranded due to the flooding. They were later successfully evacuated by the Montana National Guard. Yellowstone has millions of visitors every year, and most of them visit in the summer season. More than 4.8 million people visited Yellowstone in 2021 to visit the 2 million acres of land across Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. The Weather Service reported that Yellowstone
0: received 1.37 inches of rain on Sunday, which beat a previous record of just over half an inch in 2005. To put into perspective how much the record was broken by, 1.37 inches is 2.74 times as much as half an inch. So to put this, you know, analogy into a baseball term for our baseball fans out there, this would be like someone breaking Barry Bond's single season home run record of 73 home runs by hitting 200 in a season.
1: Wow. Matt, my the American in me is just. Loving that that analogy right now. Sometimes you got to drop the metric system and
0: just talk baseball.
1: Yeah, just talk <laughs> baseball or football fields. That's all we need. That's all we know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, meteorologists also predict more rain coming this weekend to the area, which raises the flood risk for the park.
0: Yeah, this is definitely you know a very sad story, and and to look at the pictures, it's it's tough, and especially knowing that climate change is going to make flooding happen more often because it's going to make rain more intense and the storms come in more often. This was kind of a grim peek into the future for me for one of my favorite spots in the country. So this was, this was pretty jarring. Had you been to Yellowstone before? Yeah, I have, um, absolutely loved it. You know, I'm big into wildlife for anyone who didn't pick that up in the last year we've been doing this show. (laughs) So I I loved Yellowstone because of the wildlife. There's a bunch of parks I've been to and some had cooler, uh, hiking trails or mountain ranges or whatever it is you're looking for, but something about seeing just bison roaming free. We saw a wild coyote, saw some elk. Like it was just, yeah, That that's the sort of stuff I love. So yeah, this, this one hit kind of close to home seeing pictures of areas that I've been to just ravaged.
1: Yeah. Seeing the roads just like demolished and specifically that video of the house mm-hmm. just getting taken out. Like you can't even account for something like that. It's just so random. But obviously, again, due to climate change.
0: Yeah. So 2021 saw a record number of people go to Yellowstone after 2020's two month closing of the park due to COVID 19. 2022 was on pace to break that record, which also has a major impact on local businesses that rely on park tourism. And that's something that we wanted to touch on here. You know, this year marks the 150th anniversary of the establishment of Yellowstone, and the plans were to celebrate by, you know, doing a bunch of local events nearby, events in the park. Some of those included events with indigenous tribes like a teepee village, uh, horseback riding. It was basically this huge Yellowstone 150 celebration planned. There is hope that the events will still go on, uh, both for the value of Native American tribes occupying the Yellowstone landscape and for the likely economic benefit to the region. But yeah, I mean, as of right now, this this is on pace to have a pretty big economic impact, uh, negatively. And I'm thinking of this one pancake house we went to while we were there. And, you know, it's, it's the, the people who just like, they own their restaurant. They make a lot of their money during the busy summers for Yellowstone. And yeah, they just absolutely love the land there and, and love their community. And it sucks that, you know, people like that are going to get pretty badly impacted here.
1: Yeah. That, that's a great point. I was actually going to bring that up too, is like the locals, you know, like the people who are running local businesses, they rely on that busy summer season. Like I'm thinking about places near here where um, like New the Jersey Shore, like all those places, they rely on like that summer peak. And if they don't get it, a lot of them will just go out of business. And I'm sure that this is going to affect those people in Yellowstone really hard, too. Yeah, it's, it's definitely definitely a tough
0: situation. And I, I tend to think we're right here, but let's let's hope we're wrong. Um, on that somber note, we are gonna take a quick break. And when we get back, we have three quick hits for you. Bet you didn't think three were coming. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT.
1: Welcome back to The Planet Today, folks. And from one flooding story before the break to another, our next quick hit is from the Associated Press, and it's titled Climate Driven Flooding Poses Well Water Contamination Risks by Michael Phyllis and John Flesher.
0: So this is another climate change is a public health issue story that you can share with your friends, your family, if they aren't really environmentalists and you want to get them aboard this whole fighting climate change train. More intense rainfall leads to increased flooding, which can turn well water muddy and brown. Even after the mud sediment gets cleared out, bacteria can remain. The EPA estimates that roughly 53 million U.S. residents, which is about 17% of the population, so just under one in five people, rely on private wells. So this is a major issue.
1: Yeah, and the bacteria that Matt just brought up come from animal and human feces, dirt, Nutrients like nitrogen and other contaminants seeping into wells during a flood. Climate change is projected to make flooding worse. One example of flooding increasing bacteria was after Hurricane Harvey in Texas, where E. coli levels were almost three times higher than normal. Yeah, so we've touched on this quite a bit. Soil is very important,
0: and in this case, soil can provide a protective layer above groundwater under normal circumstances but flooding can cause more water to seep in and mix with that cleaner groundwater. Aside from flooding, industrial contamination can also reach groundwater wells and contaminate drinking water.
1: Yeah. I mean, 17% of the population is a massive amount. Like when you put it like that, it doesn't sound like a lot, but 53 million us residents, that should be a wake up call. Like that would be a major pressure builder on our water systems if those people with private wells can no longer get fresh water from their well.
0: Yeah, I mean, another way to look at it, we said 17%, so that's almost one in five. You and I each have two siblings, you and I each have two parents. If we all moved out separately, chances are we would each have one person in our family who is on a private water well. Yeah. So to put it that way, I mean, look, that's not to say that all those water wells are gonna be contaminated or at risk. It is to say that there is a chance and part of the chance is actually because of one of the benefits of having a water well. You know, it's it's independence from a public water system. There are less regulations for them. You know, you are just getting your water from the groundwater below your property. In this case, that can be a bad thing. It's not to say it definitely is. You know, I, my old House that I grew up in had a private well. We were up on top of a hill, so there's no flooding runoff that we are going to, you know, be impacted by. But not everyone lives on top of a hill and has their own well there, so federal water systems must meet federal safety standards. Private systems don't need to do that, and basically, the law says that wells that serve fewer than 25 people or have fewer than 15 connections do not need to follow those standards. So with less regulations, there's less reason to make sure that it's safe. And most of the time, that's not going to be a bad thing, but it can be. And with 20% almost of the population being impacted by this, it's really something that could be, you know, a a major issue down the road as climate change makes flooding more abundant
1: and stronger. Yeah, and like even more scary because there is no regulation, like you just said, you know, so you could not even know that you're drinking water or bathing in water that is unhealthy for you or has bacteria in it still, or whatever the case may be. And I'm, I'm going to say that's nasty and also <laughs> scary, you know, like it sucks. Yeah. And you know, most of the time you don't have to worry about it. So it's
0: not something that's probably on your radar. Oh, let's get this checked all the time because I mean, it's like going to the doctor. Like how often do we go to the doctor because everything's going well? Like we are notoriously bad at getting our annual checkups. (laughs) And I think this is another one of those situations where like an annual checkup on your well is probably a really good idea, but if it comes out and it's tasting the same, you might not be able to taste some of the chemicals that seeped in, you know, like why are you going to get it checked if it isn't functioning any different?
1: Yeah. All right, let's get into our next quick hit and it's titled victory. The ivory trade ban is finally put into effect in the UK after long fought campaign to protect endangered elephants by Karen Lapazoo of World Animal News. So there's actually an exclamation mark in that headline. So we're going to go with victory.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, last Monday, a long awaited ivory trade ban came into effect in the United Kingdom, which does allow for very limited exceptions. Those who break this law face a fine of up to 250,000 pounds, which is roughly 313000 dollars or up to five years in prison. The Ivory Act was passed in December 2018, so it took three and a half years for the ban to come into effect. The International Fund for Animal Welfare and other conservation groups say this will help protect elephant populations from further poaching for their tusks.
1: James Sawyer, IFAW's UK director, said that the IFAW campaigned long and hard for the ivory ban to be passed so that the UK could play no further part in the bloody ivory trade. He added that as many as 20,000 elephants every year are poached for ivory trinkets that no one needs and that it is now vital for the ban to be enforced.
0: Yeah, so something that I found really interesting and honestly very encouraging is that before the Ivory Act was passed... IFAW had encouraged members of the public to surrender their unwanted ivory items so that they could be handed over to a government agency for safe disposal, as opposed to, you know turning them in somewhere, selling them, and having them potentially re-enter the marketplace, thus keeping that value for ivory higher. Thousands of items were handed over, from entire tusks to carvings, figurines, and walking sticks. So Sawyer added that the ivory should only be valued on a live elephant and that the overwhelming public support for people banning the trade shows that the majority of people feel the same.
1: Yeah, and the article closes with this quote that highlights just how awesome elephants are. Elephants are intelligent and social animals that also play an important role in the ecosystem and even help combat climate change by enabling greater carbon capture in the landscapes they inhabit. They are often referred to as ecosystem engineers, as they help modify landscape as they feed and move through it, creating new clearings and space for other species to grow and thrive, as well as dispersing seeds. Yeah, not much to add
0: here. I mean, elephants are my favorite animal. This is a good story. I will say that hopefully, in addition to decreasing the value of ivory by banning this, um, You know, one of the things that needs to get talked about with poaching is addressing the root cause of poaching. I don't think that people wake up and they're like, I want to kill a rhino or or an elephant. That's going to be fun. Yeah. I think a lot of times you do it because you're in a difficult economic position and that is an easy way, not easy, but you know, it's a quick way to make money. So, you know, making it devalued is a really good start, but I'm also very into the societal problem solving of how do we address the root cause of poverty instead of just outlawing the effects of it so yeah
1: yeah i agree with you you got to address the root issue all right and here's our last quick hit of the week and it's from carbon brief where josh gabatis writes wind farms raise incomes and house prices in rural u.s study finds A new study published in a scientific journal called Energy Policy found that wind turbines have
0: increased local incomes by roughly 5% and house values by 2.6% in parts of the United States. Wind energy generated 9% of all U.S. electricity last year, and a lot of that came from wind turbines in rural regions, which are also the areas that have benefited the most from their installation.
1: There's a map in the article that shows wind power in 1995 compared to wind power in 2019, and it shows where most of the wind capacity in the country is concentrated. Wind power advocates support the installations as a potential source of income for communities that are often struggling economically by providing jobs to those building and maintaining the turbines. They also provide income to local landowners and greater demand for local goods and services. The
0: article points out that the increase in property taxes being paid as a result of these installations in rural areas also leads to benefits such as increased school spending by local governments. Something from the article that I want to bring up is, quote, in some quarters of the U.S., there have been concerns that wind turbines could harm communities, chiefly by lowering property prices. This echoes backlashes seen in the United Kingdom and France, although in both nations, onshore wind power is, in fact, broadly very popular. So my thinking here is uh, NIMBY, which is a phrase that stands for not in my backyard. And a lot of people on paper will say, you know, I really support this whole wind thing. I really support this whole clean energy thing. I just don't want to, you know, ruin my view of, of these trees or the mountains or the river which look, I get it. I mean, no one wants to have their way of life changed unless they are voluntarily doing the changing, but sometimes change is good. And for me, I get really excited when I see wind turbines, because that's a lot better than seeing a coal fired power plant ripping off smog into the sky.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm an, I'm in agreement with you there. I feel like they're not that ugly. They could definitely be more ugly. Like wind turbines. I think they look cool. Like we could maybe even come out with some different colors. We could go with like a fully black one, like a matte black one. Maybe a red one for the people who like red. I don't know. I'm just spitballing.
0: If we're going to do that, we got to figure out something to. Uh, the reason they're white is because it's going to reflect light pretty well.
1: Uh, um, God damn you scientists. You always do stuff for yeah, reasons. There's, there's
0: always something where it's like, why can't we just have something that looks cool? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't care if it functions less. It's, you know, put the, put the, my, my dream turbine. It's all black. It's got flames coming up the bottom half and then the top of each wind, like the, the blade itself yeah. has frosted tips and it's just a guy fietti
1: windmill. <laughs> okay. I need someone who's good in Photoshop to please at least try doing that. I don't care if it's like horrendous. I just want to see what that looks like. That's hysterical. <laughs> Um, But anyway, the positive effects of wind installation varied from project to project with larger projects having greater economic benefits. Building wind farms did not really impact the population decline in many parts of rural America and also did not have much of an impact on total employment. Employment just transferred from the farm to construction. Yeah. So, you
0: know, with that decrease in population, I think part of that comes from an increase in machinery. So you look at rural America where traditionally there's a lot more farmland than New York City, your Bostons, your DCs, your San Francisco's. There's a lot more farmland. And traditionally with that, it's a lot easier to have a big family and employ your kids than it is to say, pay all of these people to come in and work on your farm. As technology has better developed and machinery has gotten more efficient, easier to just use a machine than it is to have you know eight kids
1: yeah unless you are phil rivers
0: yeah what does he have nine (laughs) now i think he's up to nine or ten yeah dude's fielded an entire baseball team (laughs) (laughs) it's unbelievable all right with that another sports analogy we are going to end today's episode of tpt on monday i'm going to be back for our june interview episode
1: yeah, so Matt spoke with Nick Shalitz of the Natural Resources Conservation Service about what the NRCS does, soil health, and agriculture.
0: Yeah, definitely a fun one, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Also, shout out to our friend and listener, Virginia Croft, for uh, doing the introduction there and setting us up with that interview. Until then, please go give the show a five star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. Every show, every song is produced
1: by this man across the screen from me, Nick Janusa. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can find me on soundcloud.com slash and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all.
0: Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace!